0: Well, of course, today is New Year's Day. But you probably know that the first major holiday on our calendar is coming up on January 6th, and it's Epiphany. Um, January 6th is always the day of Epiphany because Christmas, congratulations, is still here. Christmas is a 12-day celebration, so you're still in the middle of it, way to go. And uh, 12 days leads us all the way to January the 5th, which is when we would celebrate Twelfth Night. And here you go, fun fact for all of you, um, technically you're supposed to take your Christmas decorations down on Twelfth Night. But the ancient church realized that that may be hard for some people, (laughs) and so you have an out. You, You can go all the way, to you can leave your Christmas decorations up to a date called Candlemas, which is the day that we celebrate the 40 days after Jesus' birth when he would have been taken to the temple for his purification, and that means you're good to go till February 4th. But the church has said, if you miss both the Epiphany window and the Candlemas window, you will have bad luck. So make sure they're down by February 4th, according to the ancient church. Um, So what is Epiphany? Well, Epiphany is just a word that means appearing or manifestation or revealing. And it's a a date very early in the life of the church. So very, very early, the church recognized this is a date to celebrate um, Jesus being revealed as king of all. And they connected that with the story of the Magi. And it's been celebrated kind of wild ways throughout uh, the whole world. We actually here in the States don't do a great job of celebrating Epiphany, but I tell you, there are places we could go. We could do some awesome things. So in South America, for example, they they celebrate um, Dia de Reyes, which I think means the Day of the Kings. And um, kids would leave their shoes out with... Um, hay and grass and water. So when the kings came by, their camels had something to eat, and they'd leave toys in their shoes. So put your shoes out on January 5th. See what happens. I don't know. <laughs> it's awesome. There's also um, in Poland, it's a national holiday. So they have massive parades and they like bring out the zoo animals and parade them down and throw out candy and they do all stuff. It's a. It's awesome. In in Slavic countries, there's a tradition of the the local um, pastor or priest going to the largest um, body of water nearby, whether it's a river or a lake or even the sea, and taking a wooden cross and throwing it out as far as he could. And then all the young men in the town go out into the freezing cold water (laughs) to retrieve the cross. And if you get the cross, you, um, you uh, you get prosperity for the year. Some of you guys know king cakes you know things like that i gotta tell you i've learned about my favorite one though so my favorite epiphany celebration is in ireland which i have learned and and i don't know how widely this is celebrated this is according to wikipedia so do what you want with it but i'm going with it apparently in ireland epiphany is sometimes called little christmas or women's christmas (laughs) do you know this and here's what women's christmas means it means that traditionally january 6th is supposed to be a day of rest and celebration for all the women who have worked for the past two weeks to cook and to make the holiday happen. (laughs) And it's 100% true. (laughs) And so they go out and and all the women, you're supposed to give a gift to the women in your life and then they all get to go out together to the pub or to like a restaurant and so they don't have to cook and they go out together and they celebrate on January 6th. And so I say, whoever's interested, let's take on January 6th as women's Christmas, right? There's many women in this room who are like, yeah, that's awesome, right? We don't do a great job of it, but it is an important day uh, in the church to celebrate, uh, to celebrate what it means that Christ has been revealed as king. And so we're going to look at that story today. We're going to be in Matthew 2. You'll want to turn there. And over the next three weeks, we're actually going to look at some of these stories that come that arrive in Jesus's early life. The church traditionally throughout the season of Epiphany looked at these stories from early in Jesus's life. So next week, we're going to see Mary and Joseph and Jesus head to Egypt, The week after that, we'll see Jesus, the the young boy at the temple. But this week was probably the story we're most familiar with, which is the visit of the Magi. So would you join me as we read this morning? This is Matthew 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. God, I ask that we would, um, we would see the example of those who come to seek you and that our hearts might be kindled towards that seeking as well. We might be people of, of worship of the true king. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, let's look at this story by just looking at three pieces of it. We're going to look at unlikely seekers, we're going to look at the true king, and then we're going to see an authentic response. So unlikely seekers, a true king, and an authentic response. Let's start with these unlikely seekers. All right, I hate to be the person who does that, but what I want you to do is I want you to take, a, use your imagination and think about all the things we tend to associate with the wise men. Right? That there's three of them and they're kind of dressed really fancy and they're carrying these gifts and they show up at the manger on Christmas night with the shepherds and the star and the angels and they're there and they're part of the whole picture and they've come with their camels and stuff. I want you to take that and I just want you to set it aside. (laughs) or just take it and gently put it over here because I don't think the majority of that the text doesn't support and the problem is there's, there's some things in the text that might really encourage us if we kind of look at them clearly. So you guys ready? Let's, let's just look at what's actually happening. All right, we're told right in the beginning that we have these, we have uh, in verse 1, these wise men from the east. Well, east of Jerusalem is Arabia, and man, do the scholars like to debate where these wise men are from. They could be from Babylon, where there's some Jewish history. They could be from Persia. They could even be from further east. No one really knows, and it's a bummer because we like to know these things, right? But all we know is they're from the east. And our our translation uses the, the phrase wise men to describe them, but the word there is a word you're all familiar with. The word there is magi. And magi is the root word from which we get the word magician, right? And so the magi are kind of this curious mix of a profession and a religion, and they kind of go together. And what we really think is happening here is that these are people who they're, they're probably principally astrologers. So there would be people who had some kind of scientific, scholarly life that they turned towards examining um, signs and portents in the sky. And maybe some other things, dreams, maybe some other signs. But it was well known in the ancient Greco-Roman world that if you wanted to know what was going to happen, you needed to consult a magi, and preferably a magi from the east. They were believed to be the best. And so these Magi would, would read the signs and they would decide something was going to happen. We know that Magi showed up at the coronation of many emperors and the birth of some of the Roman emperors. And so they were, they were important. And how many are there, right? You guys know this? No idea, right? Tradition had decided there were three because there's three gifts given. But there could be as many as, as we could imagine or there could be just two, who knows, right? But we know that it's plural, And these astrologers, these these wise men, these diviners, these seekers of truth have discerned in the sky something that's telling them what? Did you notice? It's telling them that a king of the Jews has been born. And this is the part of the story that I wish didn't get kind of clouded with our nativity scenes and the way that we tend to act out the story. This is the part because they don't follow the star to Bethlehem on Christmas night. They don't do it. What do they do? They go to Jerusalem, because all they know at this point is that a king has been born, that is going to be king of the Jews, and so they go exactly where any of us would go. If we heard that there was a new king in a kingdom, we would go to the capital of that kingdom. They don't go straight to the manger, and the, the star does not lead them there. This is an important point. It's important for us to know that Jerusalem is the first stop that they make because they gain an important piece of information in Jerusalem. Right? What do they gain? They gain the location of Bethlehem. The star didn't lead them to Bethlehem. The scriptures led them to Bethlehem. And this is critical. This is really important, right? The star didn't lead them to Bethlehem. The scriptures led them to Bethlehem. They would have just been wandering around Judea until they learned that the scriptures said in Micah 5 that Bethlehem was where the ruler would come from. So they see a star and they tell everyone in Jerusalem that they've come to worship a newborn king. This is the other thing. They don't go straight to Herod, right? Did you notice? they just kind of enter the city, right, and they start asking around, can't you imagine what this was like, right, here comes, whatever, however many you want to imagine in your head, imagine these fancy foreigners from the east, they come into the city, and they start asking around, saying, hey, where's the baby, <laughs> right, we want to worship him, we heard there's a king, and can't you just imagine people are like, uh-oh, <laughs> like, what do you mean, we don't know what you're talking about, and word filters to Herod, more on that in a second, so let's talk about what's unlikely about the magi what's unique about them well they're ethnic outsiders come to seek uh, come to seek a king of someone who's not of their nationality so they're national outsiders they're also religious and professional outsiders the old testament strictly forbids astrology and divination of which they are defined by their practice of they are quintessential outsiders to the promises of god And yet, they are the ones who have received a sign from him, an invitation from him to come and see the king. I think it's important for us to see them as unlikely seekers, because in our story there are likely seekers, right? There are people who should have known better. So remember when Herod gets word that someone's come seeking a king, who does he reach out to? He reaches out to the most qualified people in the whole kingdom. He reaches out to the chief priests and the scribes, the people who know the scripture better than anything else, and he says, hey, these guys have come to town and they're looking for the newborn king, the Messiah. Where was he supposed to be born? And you don't even get a sense that they hesitate. You don't even get a sense it's a question mark. They're like, oh, well, uh, Bethlehem. That, that's what Micah says. And so can't you just imagine what should have happened? What should have happened? These people who theoretically their whole life is, is centered around waiting for God's Messiah. And here comes word that maybe he has appeared. And what do they do? Nothing. These likely seekers, the scribes, the wise people, the people who should know, according to scriptures, what God is doing, they miss it totally. They respond with apathy. They are the people who should have gone looking. Here's what's what's even wilder, you guys. Bethlehem is about a five-mile walk from Jerusalem. It's an afternoon's trip. It's like no more than that but they couldn't even they did not even have enough trust or in their own scriptures or curiosity about someone who was unlike them to make a trip to bethlehem and see if it was true i think this is an interesting point scripture is trying to make about the magi and it's this that the invitation to come and see the king goes out to the whole world It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter what your practice, the, the invitation goes out to the whole world. And the question becomes, will you receive the invitation and follow? Luckily for us, the Magi did. The Magi represent that important truth that Jesus is the king of the whole world. And so God overcomes the racial and moral and expected boundaries of the day to remind us that God calls precisely those that we tend to think are most unworthy. That the invitation is for them too. The invitation is to meet the true king. The invitation is to meet our true king. So if those are our unlikely seekers, who is our true king? Well, you know, it's hardly Christmas unless we sing Silent Night, right? And it's the third verse of Silent Night we sing what? Jesus is Lord at thy birth. Good job. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. It's a, it's a good line in a, in a difficult song, <laughs> right? Jesus, Lord at thy birth. So here's what's interesting about that. I want you to think about it. Very uncommon for a baby to be born who is king. Babies are usually born what? Princes. right? Babies are usually born heirs to a throne. Babies are usually born to become king. But the declaration of this scripture and the declaration of of faith is that Jesus is born a king. That Jesus enters the world worthy of kingship. That Jesus enters the world worthy of our worship and our attention. And we'll talk more about that later. And so it's important for us to know that we will understand what makes him the true king when we look at the other king in this story. Who's the other king in this story? Herod. Herod. He's a false king. And we see in Herod the opposite of everything we should expect in Jesus. You guys ready? I don't know how much you know about Herod. Herod is, is, there's a lot recorded about Herod in ancient history. What we know about him is he's not the true or good king. He wasn't even Jewish. Did you know that? He was Idumean? And the Romans were like, ah, close enough, let's make you king, (laughs) right? He kind of schmoozed his way in, he kind of had some military victories, but it turns out he's actually just a collaborator with the Roman occupiers. He's only there by Rome's allowance, and the Jews never really accepted him as king. He wasn't a true king. But not only was he not a true king, he was also cruel and wicked and and a monster, You know, some of those shows that are on TV that you have to, you know, be very mature to watch about, I don't know, thrones and games (laughs) and things like that, right? Like, Herod's stories rival those. Herod was bloodthirsty. Herod brutally put down rebellions. He executed, um, he executed people who seemed to be challenging him. He did this whole tricky thing where he got the chief priest drowned by like kids playing in a river. I mean, he was a really bad, bad dude. As a matter of fact, he had his own sons murdered because they, they seemed to be a threat to his, his authority and his rulership. You know, Caesar Augustus is literally quoted as saying that it's better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Can you imagine? Herod was a wicked, cruel, terrible man. We'll learn more about that in next week's story. But here's what's interesting. He was also capable and powerful. He led his nation in a time of, of significant prosperity. Um, they, they were better off under Herod's rule than they were under almost anyone else's. He started massive building projects in the city of Jerusalem itself and all around the, the nation of, of Judea at the time. He provided for the people during a famine. Nations around them suffered greatly in a time of famine, and he, he administered his, his, um, uh, his country so that they didn't suffer. And a matter of fact, probably what's most important to know about Herod is that he began the massive building project that would enlarge and restore the temple. And so the temple that Jesus visited was King Herod's temple. It was the temple that Herod really um, beautified and expanded and enlarged that almost what was before that was hardly recognizable after Herod's building plan was finished. You know, sometimes rulers can get good things done and be terrible people. And I think it's interesting that Herod is now troubled. Herod is now troubled because word has come that a king might have been born. And what does that mean for his power and control? And then we're told that the whole nation of Israel stirred up like they're troubled too. Because this false king's power, this false king is about to be challenged by something that he doesn't even know what is there. And can't you just imagine the hunger those people would have had for a true king, a righteous king, a good king? Herod clearly wasn't it. And that which seems powerful to us, whether it's political power or financial power or cultural power, frequently is the king we accept, but it's not the king we desire. You know, there was a need for the true king among his people. There was a hunger for him. Herod clearly was not a king like David, who was strong and just and righteous, the chosen one. He was not a king like Solomon, who was wise and wealthy and admired by the nations. He was not a king like the promised Messiah who would come to rescue his people, to deliver them from oppression and injustice. Those things were not Herod. And so when we see the story of Epiphany, we feel in ourselves that hunger for the true king, the king who will come in righteousness and justice, whose character will match his ability, who will serve his people, who will rescue his people. And and can't you just imagine, this is the king they were hoping for. And so what happens is these unlikely seekers are coming near to a true king. Well, we have an authentic response. An authentic response. Look back down at verse 10 and see what their authentic response is. First, it says that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. <laughs> right? And you're like, that's redundant. <laughs> right? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Um, it's hard for us to translate that because it's such a strong statement. It's like a yippee, woohoo, like so excited. Did any of you guys watch the celebrations of the World Cup? Right? Like, so these guys would score a goal, right? And then you would just, like, bedlam right not just like on the field they'd have some specific celebration and some craziness maybe jumping up and down and screaming and chilling and then the the camera would go to the stands and people are losing their minds in the stands right they're super excited right this is the picture that we should have of the magi in this moment they're not quiet standing at your nativity scene holding their gift they're rejoicing exceedingly with great joy they are so excited but why are they excited? They have not even laid eyes on Jesus yet. Did you notice? They haven't even entered the home where Jesus is. All that has happened is somehow they've gotten to Bethlehem and as the star has appeared again. Whatever that is, we have no idea. The star has appeared again and it's led them to the house. And before they've even entered their house, they begin to rejoice. Why? Because their efforts to seek the king have produced results. Their diligence their faithfulness, can't you imagine how difficult their journey had been? That which they were seeking had been found. They haven't even laid eyes on it, but they're standing right outside and they can, they can taste it. It's right there. They didn't know all the answers yet, but they know they have found the king. They didn't know all the answers yet, but they knew they had found the king. And because they had found the king, their first reaction is to jump up and down and scream and shout and rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Do you ever wonder how we know this detail? I mean, can't you imagine Matthew's talking to people in Bethlehem a couple decades later, and they're like, what was it like when, when the, when the Magi came to town? They're like, oh my gosh, they went crazy. <laughs> they were cheering and shouting. They were so excited. Can't you just imagine what it was like? And then now imagine you're Mary, and there's a knock at your door, <laughs> right? This is probably months after Jesus' birth. Sorry to crush another Another idea, it could even have been up to to 18 months, so there's probably closer between six months and a year. Um, The Magi now arrive in Bethlehem, and so they're not at a stable anymore. They're not in a manger. They're in a house, probably staying with relatives. And can't you just imagine that knock at the door? You guys know that feeling that we have when there's a knock at our door and we aren't expecting anyone? (laughs) Like, now imagine you've heard ridiculous exceeding joy outside, and there's a knock at your door, and you're like, oh, no. What's about to happen? Can't you imagine the door creaks open and there standing and looking at you are wise men from the east who are so happy. I mean, I just try to imagine what that was like for Mary and Joseph as this door opens. So they've rejoiced exceedingly, but now they enter the house and look back down at verse 11. It says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So now these these magi, these diviners, these very important people have entered your house and they see your baby and what is their reaction? <laughs> <laughs> Weird, right? What's happening, right? They go face down and they worship who? God? No. They worship the baby. Remember, there's something about Jesus, there's something about the baby Jesus that people have recognized, even from the very beginning, before he could do anything. There's something about the infant Jesus that people say, this is someone worthy of worship. There's something important happening here. We don't know the social position of the Magi, but it was sufficient for them to have felt that it was appropriate to visit a newborn king and to have an audience with the king of Jerusalem, and yet here they are, these foreign dignitaries, just laying down on the ground, in front of an ordinary child in an ordinary house. And how remarkable that might be. There's no indication that there's any, you know, contrary to that third verse of Silent Night, to radiant beams shine from his holy face. Probably not, right? It's not like he's glowing, right? But there's something about Jesus that they recognize. And it leads them to worship, to acknowledge his worth. And so they respond by rejoicing, they respond by worshiping, and then they respond by giving their wealth. Look back down in verse, at the end of verse 11, we're told that they open their treasures and offer him gifts. Well, a better word for treasure there is treasure chest, or like a coffer. You don't get the sense that they had these very particular gifts to give. What you actually get the sense is they go, oh my gosh, we need to give him something. And so they open up their coffers and they look at their resources and they say, what do we have to give? And they give him gold and they give him frankincense and they give him myrrh. These are luxury items. These are the gifts of the affluent. And can't you imagine as they, they stood in that common, ordinary, run-down, tiny village, Bethlehem house, they thought, oh gosh, these people need it. Right? They knew exactly what they were doing. And so they hand over their wealth to the true king, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's this picture for us of what it means to, to see someone who is, who is higher above us in status, who is more worthy than we are, and to hold what we have very loosely and to say, you, king, are truly worthy of the resources that I have. This is exactly what the magi have done. They've rejoiced, they've worshipped, they've given generously, and then finally, notice what else they give. They give their allegiance So the very last thing we're told in this passage is that they are warned in a dream not to to go back to Herod. And so here's the thing. The birth of a true king is the dethronement of all other kings. The birth of Jesus is the dethronement of all other kings in our life. And so they will not obey the request of Herod because they have to They have to act in the best interest of their new king. They choose to go back home by a harder way, a different way, a more difficult way, a new way. And unless we think that's just like a change of direction on a map. We need to understand this would have been very difficult. All roads back to the east would have brought you near Jerusalem, and remember how close they are to Herod. Surely Herod has sent spies. Surely word will get back to Herod that they have not done as he requested, and they're heading out. Surely this is a dangerous choice they are making to avoid the king of the land who has been shown, proven himself to be brutal and bloodthirsty and instead try to escape and head back to their home. This is what allegiance is. They're now loyal to a new king. And allegiance means there's no longer making decisions based on their interest, but they're making making decisions based on the interest of the one they came to worship. So when you encounter a, a true king, you rejoice, you worship, you give your wealth, and you give your allegiance. You say, I'm going to make my choices based on serving and following this king, not any other So you get how the story of the Magi, this epiphany story, kind of upends what we're used to seeing, what we're used to experiencing when we put up our nativity scenes and we throw the wise men in there. I think it's a great thing to keep the wise men in your nativity scene. But the real story is fuller, right? It's bigger. And it's a challenge for us. Friends, here's, here's the challenge. Do you seek Jesus? What would it look like for 2023 to be the year you were as diligent and committed as the Magi were? What would it, what would it be like if this was the year you said, I'm, I'm going to go looking for God's rulership in my life. I'm going to go looking for the ways that God is present. What would it look like if this was the year that we said, I'm, I'm seeking after God with everything that I have? Or what if this was a challenge to us to recognize the king. You know, there's something something that God did in the hearts of the Magi so that when they saw the baby, they knew who he was. They knew that he deserved, that he was worthy of what they had come to offer. And I think for us, we need to consider whether or not we recognize Jesus as he appears in our life. Do we recognize him as king? As the one who, to whom we, we owe our, to whom, to whom we ascribe ultimate value? Or do we just recognize him as a convenient part of life, a nice piece of our well-rounded existence? Like the Magi, will we be those who recognize the king? And I think lastly, we have a challenge. A challenge that comes to us and says, do we give the king, our worship? Have we given to God a sense that he is the one of ultimate value and worth? Do we give to God the time that it takes to acknowledge who he is, the lifestyle that, that, that reflects that we know his worth and his value and that he's, he's worthy of all the, the praise that we can offer him? Do we give him our wealth? Do we hold our resources instead, instead for, for God himself? Does Jesus have claim on our money? Does Jesus have claim on our time? Does Jesus have claim on our attention? And to what extent might this be the year that we're willing to share with him that which seems like it belongs to us? Will we be like the magi and give him our worship? Will we give him our wealth? And will we give him our allegiance might 2023 be the year that we give up making decisions based on our own self-interest and instead work to make decisions on what will best serve and represent the true king and his kingdom? For as Jesus has always been king, he is king even now. Nothing escapes his care or his concern or his presence or his righteousness, the question for us on earth in this human life is, will we recognize him and acknowledge him as such? You know, Israel, they rejected him. They responded with apathy. But might we be something different? Might we be more like the Magi? Who were invited, who were, who were, who were called out by God to meet this king? You may have noticed before that it is at Jesus' birth that he is first labeled the king of the Jews. But that is not the last time Jesus is labeled the king of the Jews. You'll remember that as Pilate sentences Jesus to death, he orders that a sign be hung on his cross. And you remember what that sign said. In three different languages it said, the king of the Jews. At his birth and his death, there is recognition, even though it be backhanded and cruel at his crucifixion, that this is the king we've all been waiting for. The baby, the wise men came to worship, became the one who suffered on the cross as the whole world turned its back on him. He is not just the king of the Jews, but he is our king too. And our king gave his life that we would be with him forever. And so we come to his table. We come to this place where we remember his kingship over us and we celebrate again a reminder, a sign and a seal for us that God's love for us is towards us, that on the cross as he gave, his body broke, as his blood was shed, that we were invited into his kingdom. Paul says that in that act we were rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son. And so as we gather around this table... What, what more fitting way to start a new year than to take this meal from this table as a reminder just like to Moses and Aaron centuries and millennia ago that new things start at the announcement of the great rescuing love of God. Because on the night that he was betrayed Jesus took the bread and after giving thanks he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this remembering me. For as often as you do eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do proclaim the saving death and resurrection of our Lord until he comes again.